welcome to Thriving with Mental Illness, a podcast with real talk, an open and honest conversation about issues surrounding mental health. There are no topics that are off limits and no questions that aren't okay to ask. I'm Mikkel Buck, author, public speaker, and suicide survivor who's lived with mental illness for over 20 years. And with me is my guy, Adam. Hey guys, welcome back. We are uh, glad to have you here. We thought we'd start off. What's new in the world? What, what's happened this week? What can we share? Well, we've been hitting the gym hard in the mornings. Yes. We... Today was leg day. <laughs> yeah. So we just go you know, to a gym around the corner in the neighborhood. We see people we know. We have our uh, friend and neighbor that we've lived by for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And the other day I was leaving the gym and he calls me over, like waves me over. And he's like, hey, Mikkel, Mikkel, uh, Adam is so focused and, and so intense at the gym. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he's like, he walked right by me. And I said, hi. And, and like, he didn't even blink. He didn't even look. And I said, well, Britt, I hate to tell you this, but Adam actually has beef with you. That's, that's what's happening here. Like sometimes he can get over it and say hi. And sometimes it's just more than what he can do. So try not to worry about it. <laughs> anyway, which of course is not true. I told you that. And now we always say hi when we leave. He's, he's super awesome. So Next, we have our meme of the week. We do have a meme of the week. As always, there are several options to choose from, and it's very hard to decide on just one. Now, before we do this, I just want to let everybody know, Mikkel spends hours curating the best memes. (laughs) This is like my coping mechanism. I got it from (laughs) Sam. Like, things have been rough with the med change, okay, man? Don't give me grief. (laughs) So yes, these are these are some of the best. Yes, yes. So the meme of this week is from r slash bipolar. And it says, uh, don't you hate it when you get excited from hearing a text notification, but it's really just your pharmacy letting you know your antipsychotics are ready to be picked up? So true. <laughs> so true. All right. On today's show, we're, we're very excited to have Paula Fontanelle uh, with us. She's a licensed therapist. She's originally from Brazil. Uh, fascinating story, moved here not too long ago, four years ago, and now lives in Oregon. And she's an author, uh, written a book, Understand Suicide. She's dedicated her life, really, to understanding suicide. And she has a podcast as well. Um, And she shares experiences and stories, and it's really an awesome podcast, so you should check it out. But we're so glad to have her on our episode today. All right. Today we're here with Paula Fontanelle. So you started off as a journalist down in Brazil. And yeah. why don't you tell us, because now you do more than that. So why don't you tell us kind of how you got here to where you are? Yes, it's actually, I do more than that. I actually totally changed my life around. Uh, I, I worked as a journalist for about, I don't know, 20 something years. That says a lot about my age, I guess. <laughs> 20 something years as a journalist. And then that started to change after my father took his life in 2005. Uh, because as it happens, uh, most of the times with families who lose someone to suicide, we had all these questions. And for me personally, I, I'm one of those people that need to understand what, what happened. That's how I deal. I dealt with my grief and that's how I deal with anything that bothers me. I need to understand. 
So I started studying and back then we didn't have any books in Brazil on suicide, believe it or not. This is 2005, so that's not that long ago. So, but fortunately I already, by then I, I spoke English. So I started buying books and started reading about it. And I wanted to understand why, because we didn't have any history in our family or even friends. I'd never, I had never been touched by suicide in any way. Oh, wow. So, so back then, that's what I did. I started studying and reading and trying to understand it and, and it really helped. And, and from what I, I talked to families and friends of loved ones who took their lives, they always say, yeah, it does help. It does help to, to read about other cases, to understand the perspective of, you know, from their mind, the, their perspective. So after that, I decided that that's what I wanted to work on. I wanted to help prevent suicide. So I actually wrote the first book on suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. Three years after his death, that's when I published the book and I interviewed a lot of people. <clears throat> many, What's the many name of, of the them. Book? Uh, it's Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention. You can find it on Amazon. Okay. So this book was actually a finalist on our book award oh. at the time. So wow. yeah, I'm very proud of it. It was a very painful book to write, as you can imagine. I had to actually stop three times mm. because it was too much. Because on, on one hand, it was helping me understand. But at the same time, it was making me relive the death of my father over and over again. So yes. it, was, it got to be too much at times. But that's after that, I decided, okay, I need to change my profession. And I started my training in psychoanalysis, which took me five years. And then I finished my master's in clinical mental health. And I decided to change my life completely. And that's what I do now. I work as a therapist and I do, uh, even independently from my clinical work, I do the suicide prevention work, which has, a, as you know, a my podcast, my website, and YouTube channel, all of that. Wow. And that's how we were introduced to you. You found our podcast and you reached out to me. <clears throat> yes. And then yes. I shared more of my story on your podcast called Understand Suicide. And it's, you have so many stories and so many angles. It's fascinating to listen to. I, everybody should go check it out because there's so many more things. There are just so many facets of mental illness and it's mm -hmm. impossible to hit all of the areas and you've done <clears throat> a really good job uh helping in thank the areas you. that you look at thank you and, and it is although it's called understand suicide it does focus on mental health a lot and all you know everything that makes us human like loneliness shame guilt all of that these are things that are related to suicide directly or indirectly but it's not just about suicide i do bring in a lot of stories of people who attempted suicide always with the angle of hope because that's the most important thing. How can we bring hope into this conversation, right? Because there's so much hopelessness when it comes to suicide on both sides of the story, someone who is at risk or families who lose someone to suicide. And that's my main goal with the, with the podcast. How can we bring in hope? And I think that that's where we're similar and we're aligned in our message because I, you know, we also want people to feel hope. You know, you can live happily, you can thrive, like the title of our podcast in my book, You Can Thrive with Mental Illness. And that's what we want people to know and to be able to do. 
we want to talk about um, some of the work that you do with people who who have family members and friends that have um, committed suicide and the grief that comes along with that. And that's a perspective that we've never had anybody on our podcast talk about. So um, can you just explain what your, I don't know, what you do along those lines and what you've learned as you've worked with people and families? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, suicide grief is a very particular kind of grief. There's so many layers to that, and I'll just mention a few. And this is what I've been learning over the years. I've been talking to families, interviewing them, uh, guiding them through their grief. I've had clients. I have clients who specifically come because they are going through grief by suicide. I have right now three or four very recent suicides, which it's. Uh, I'm sure you've been you've thought about this. I mean, the pandemic has not, yeah. for mental health has been really a blow. So we've been, we've been hearing a lot from a, a lot of cases. I, I have never, I think, since I started working with this, which has been more than a decade ago, I don't think I've heard of so many cases of so many people contacting me. But talking about grief, there are many aspects of it that you can only find on suicide or that's more prominent. For example, shame. Shame is always there. And you may think, well, but there's shame depending on the disease that you have or when it's related to mental health, there is shame. But with suicide, it's just so, it's such a silent grief. People don't know what to say. They don't know if, whether or not they should even talk about it. They don't, they don't stop talking about the dead, the person, the deceased person. They don't want to talk about them anymore because they think that it may bring more pain to you. And they think that you don't want to talk about it, which is in most cases not true. We are in such a around us there's so much shame there's so much guilt guilt is another central one I, I I don't think I've ever talked to someone who lost a loved one to suicide who doesn't feel guilt and it's not about the death itself only sometimes you may you know that you did everything that you could you have tried to help you had a good relationship but there is always something to feel guilty about and I'll give you my own case my own story my dad, the last two years of his life, we were very, very close. I was trying to help him. He was having a lot of trouble, a lot of financial difficulties, new wife, a lot of responsibility, and I was very close to him. So I never felt guilt in terms of I could have done more, but I did feel guilty at the time because the day before he died, he went to my sister's house and I was talking to, I was actually on the phone with my sister because I was a, I was here in the US on vacation and they were in Brazil. And my sister was talking to me and she told me, oh, dad is coming up. He just called me. Do you want to talk to him? And I said, no, 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 I'll talk because I was coming back to Brazil that week. And I said, no, I'll talk to him next week. I'll see him in a couple of days. And sadly enough, the next, next day is when he took his life. And now, of course, looking in retrospect, we know that the reason why he was there was to say goodbye to my sister. That's why he went there. She didn't know at the time, but she did feel that there was something off. 
but I felt so guilty after that, that I had not talked to him because I thought, well, maybe I could have picked up on something. Or even if I didn't, I lost the chance to talk to him once more. So there is always, in some shape or form, there's always some kind of guilt. So this is something that every time I talk to someone, they may, they may feel guilty about the relationship itself. We were never very close. So I was not a good mom or I, I, was, I was absent as a father. So there is always a degree of guilt there. And there is shame, as I said, there is a lot of silence. There is so much prejudice people are uncomfortable with suicide because they're not sure what to think about it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I kind of want to go back to what you had said a little bit earlier that when suicide happens, we don't really know how to respond. Do we talk about it? Do we not talk about it? If we do Mm -hmm. talk about it, what do we say? Are we making it worse? Are we making it better with our conversation? So what do you think the best way to handle that is as people on the outside who want to reach out, who want to support, what do we do? Well, first of all, make yourself available. Make yourself available because when you do that, the decision is not yours anymore. And you can just acknowledge your awkwardness. You know, you don't feel comfortable. Acknowledge that you, you don't feel comfortable about it because the truth is sometimes the person really doesn't want to talk about it yet. There is always a yet there, right? You don't know if you don't ask. So just ask candidly in a nice way with no prejudice, with no judgment. That's very important. Don't talk about right or wrong. How could he or she do that? And that's not the main focus here. It's just for the person to know that if you do want to talk about this, I understand this is awkward. I don't know if you're ready to talk about this or even if you want to talk about this. But if you do, I'm here. So that's the main thing. Make yourself available and leave all kinds of judgments aside. Because believe me, we are judging ourselves too harshly already. We are judging ourselves, we are judging our loved one, which makes suicide grief so hard because you don't, when someone, when you lose someone to any other kind of, to disease, to accidents, whatever it is, you usually don't feel angry at them. But with suicide, you many, many times you do. And that brings guilt even, it's even worse for your guilt because you feel guilty about being angry at someone who just died and you love. So there's, there's just so many layers of that. That's why I say, don't judge, don't ask questions, don't pry. That's another difference. Some, sometimes when someone dies by any other means, people become very careful with what they ask. They, they, they're very careful with, your, um, with confidentiality, with your privacy. With suicide, it's the opposite. They become curious and they want, they start to ask questions that they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so so saying, uh, that's an odd. People on the <clears throat> outside really don't need to understand or, or really ask mm-hmm. probing questions about, well, what, mm-hmm. what happened here and why? Because ultimately it doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is to support the person who's left behind needs needs connection. Would you say there's any difference? Because obviously anytime someone passes away, reaching out to the family or to your friend is a little sensitive. Um, 
Hmm. Is it any different when the death was by suicide and how we should react and how we should interact? Mm -hmm. Well, the difference is because I think on our side, and that's speaking from the family side, there's so many questions. And, and that's why what you said is so important, Adam. Don't ask questions. They already have enough interrogations in their mind. They're asking themselves who is to blame. And that's another, uh, another very sensitive thing about suicide grief. Even the families themselves, there is a lot of blaming sometimes within the family system. Right, you blame how, you weren't very nice to him, and maybe you were the one responsible because you're not a good son. You so, so much work, so there there is so much going on that really don't ask questions, don't pry, respect privacy, but make yourself available. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing. You had said a little bit earlier, and I know when you and I talked, when I was a guest on your podcast, we talked about how suicide grief is different than other kinds of grief. Is this something that takes longer to work through because of how many layers we have that you were telling us about? I believe so. And, and when I talk to clinicians too, and I've been asking over the years clinicians, and they usually say, yes, it's a more complicated grief to go through because you have, and we, you have so many layers to it. You have all these emotions that are natural to loss, like sadness. Some people do get depressed. <clears throat> and even with other kinds of, of, of deaths, you have some questions. But with suicide, the why question is always there. Most people never reach an answer, even when you have the answer. And I'll get, again, my, my, own, my own situation, my own case, my dad, I knew he was having financial problems. He was having a lot of new responsibilities with a new marriage. He had used all, his, all the money he'd saved in a new business. He went bankrupt, it wasn't working. So there was so much there. I knew, I mean, even the separation from my mom was very painful to him. We had the death of my brother a few years before, which was a huge blow to my dad. I have all this sequence of events in my mind, but the reality with suicide is, even when you have that, at the end of the day, you say, yeah, but why? Because it's, it goes against our most basic principle, which is self-preservation. It's hard to answer that question, even when you have quote unquote all the answers. So it does take a while and you go through some phases and you go back and you, you think, okay, okay, I know why. And you go, even the emotions are a bit different. Sadness, for example, which is usually with any kind of grief, one of the first emotions that come up, you get really, really sad about the loss. With suicide, it can take you months or even years to get sad mm -hmm. because you have anger anger you get stuck on anger for so long sometimes and you have all these questions you have the shame all the shame involved you have the silence you have a lot of losses there is an author who says something that makes sense when you lose someone to suicide you lose you you change your address book you lose people you do because they disappear on you so there's just so much that sadness is kind of pushed aside for a while because you have so much to deal with. 
So some of and anger, as I mentioned before, anger is not, you can you get angry at yourself, at the person who died, at your family, at friends who disappear. So there's just a lot there and, and it does get, I think it does last longer sometimes because of that. Wow. Would you say that people can work through this on their own or do you generally recommend that they meet with a professional? Um, well, and specifically a professional like yourself that deals with this, you know, maybe not all professionals understand the nuances and intricacies of this situation. Mm-hmm. Mikhail, that's a great question. Well, first of the first part is, I do believe that with any kind of grief, even suicide, you can work through, but not on your own per se, because I believe connection is important and support is important for any kind of, of grief. But what you said, Mikhail, in terms of professionals, you, I have heard stories. I just now I started uh, treatment with someone who looked me up online. And the first thing she told me was, Paula, I have tried two or three counselors before. And most of them tell me that they are going, that I'm going to be okay because they're going to fix me. And that's when they lose me. There's nothing to be fixed. I'm not the one, I didn't take my life, right? There's nothing wrong with me. I just want, and she actually used these words. She said, I just want someone who gets it. That's all I need. Someone who can listen to me, but gets it. I don't want to be fixed. So it's, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's sad, but it's a reality. And I've heard it from many, I've heard the most horrific stories from therapists who they, they, they either have biases against suicide for whatever reason, or they have personal story with suicide. They have been touched by suicide and that kind of skews their view and makes transference really, really counter transference really hard. So I think that if you work with someone who understands it, it's better, of course, but sometimes that's not possible. I would choose at least a professional who understands and who works a lot with grief. Because if you are a grief counselor or a grief therapist, someone who does that as a main uh, area, they will have come across suicide and they know the differences. They know the peculiarities and the sensitive, sensitive things that they need to you know, ask about or watch for. So I do believe that you can do it on your own with support like any other grief. But if you find that it's maybe taking too long and it's not even about the time, but it's more about your function, your general functioning. How is it affection, affecting your function? Can you, re, can you still go back to work? Can you still do the task, perform the task that you used to? You know yourself. I mean, only the person can answer that. But you feel that, okay, I, when you know that you need help, just search for someone who works with grief. And if with suicide grief, that's even better because, because they, they, yeah, they, I think it, it, it's a better choice and it's a better fit. You know, on our podcast, we've talked about things people can say and do to help those with mental illness and things mm-hmm. that can hurt, <laughs> things you can mm-hmm. say and do that hurt. I imagine there's similar things dealing with grief and someone who's lost a loved one to, to suicide in your experience, are there things that people might typically say that are just like you shouldn't say <laughs> that that hurts? <laughs> that, that could be more hurtful. 
Um, mm -hmm. But maybe something that people might kind of uh, believe they're trying to help when they do it. Mm -hmm. Some of them are related to blaming uh, and asking these questions that should not be asked, but blaming the person. Sometimes with the best of intention, you think that if you blame the person who died or if you point fingers, you're going to make the person feel better. You won't. Things like, uh, I can't believe he or she did that to you. Mm. And there is also that dichotomy of is he being he or she being brave or coward, right? Which is totally useless when it comes to suicide. It's neither one. Mm. Suicide is not even many times about dying. It's about ending unbearable pain. It's about pain. The person mm -hmm. was in pain. And as hard as it is to, to understand, that's what it's about. Suicide is about pain or what my favorite author saw called psychic. So it's a mental kind of, kind of pain. So don't point fingers. You're not going to make anyone feel better if you kind of take sides and you say, okay, I can't believe he didn't think about it. Or if you start asking, oh, do you think that, that this is, he was brave or she was brave to do this? Because I don't think I would do that. It's totally useless. So let's forget this bravery or being a coward mm -hmm. dichotomy because it doesn't lead anywhere. Yeah, asking, pro, you know, this kind of question, they're invasive in asking about history. Oh, did they have mental illness or not? Or was something happening at home? How was your relationship? Anything like that will, will be useless and it will hurt and it will make the person back away and shut down. They are not going to continue talking to you for sure. So anything related to shaming, to making the person feel responsible, to ask this kind of invasive questions or to point fingers, or again, if you are religious and you have your beliefs or the religion has you know, dogmas about this, it's not going to help. Yeah, and I think there are some people, religious people that believe you know, it's a sin and it's, you know, and then they're wondering what's happening after this life to this person. You know, and so there's a whole different layer um, of people yeah. that may not be religious, they have to deal with as well. And people can be unhelpful when mm -hmm. they start to like make assumptions or judgments about that. Yeah. Yeah. And religion can be such a great source of comfort. And that's what the community should be, right? In terms like in times like this. And I've had even with my sister after my father died, and it wasn't long after he died. I think it was like a, a week or maybe two weeks after he died, someone was talking to my sister and they asked what happened. She said, and we never in my family, we never hid that it was suicide because some families have a hard time with that. And she said, Oh, so it was suicide? Oh my God. And then she started telling her about this horrible place where people go when they, when they take their lives, uh, there is a name for it. And oh, your father is in a horrible place. And this is what's going to happen to him. And my sister and my, and my sister is not religious. And she was just silent. She was in shock. I mean, how can you approach someone who just lost their father and talk about where he is, which is like a punishing, so he's being punished for what he said. Really? You really think that's going to help? So that keep that in mind. 
how how would you feel if you heard that it's always very helpful right mm -hmm. to put yourself in their shoes and when she told us that's so mine and i've heard that from many many people yeah unfortunately oh that's that's really good um we did want to talk a little bit about now we talked about grief we do want to talk a little bit about how to talk and help people who are struggling you know that they're struggling with depression or any type of mental illness and, and they're who, in that spot who might even be uh suicidal um and i think a lot of questions we get from people is what do i if my friend has told me they're thinking about suicide like what should i do how much involvement uh what should i say how should i help do you have any mm -hmm. advice along those lines yes i have i have a lot of advice there <laughs> because i get again it comes from experience and from hearing some horror stories too um well the first thing is is kind of similar to grief put judgment aside mm. because and and remember that this is a scary moment this is a scary conversation you're going to have so prepare yourself prepare yourself to hear some difficult things especially if it's a family member so no right and wrong because that's our i think it's our first impulse right so oh, no don't do this this is right this is wrong you shouldn't do that it's not about should or shouldn't it's not about what's right and what's wrong always keep in mind that it's about pain i have an author that is my mentor he was actually the first person to ever work with suicide prevention in the US, uh, Dr. Edwin Schneidman. And he said something that uh, until today is, is what we guide ourselves with. He says there are only two questions to ask someone who is struggling with either mental illness or personal crisis. The first one is where does it hurt? Because again, it's about pain. And the second one is how can I help? So if you keep those two guiding principles in mind, no judgment, no right and wrong, do not try to make them feel ashamed of what's going through, what's going on in their lives. So things like, do you know what this is going to do with your kids or with your family? Right. Don't do that because it's going, they know, believe me, they have thought about this over and over again. Suicide, we think it's an impulsive thing. Most of the cases, no. We know that there is a trail of warning signs there. So mainly, most of the times, it's not impulse. So they have thought about it. They feel very alone in their pain. And that's why it's important for you to give them support and to be by their side. Be proactive. I'll give you an example of something that happened to me. In terms of in terms of being proactive, because sometimes you do feel that it's it they might need to see a professional, a psychiatrist, or here you have other options. But in Brazil, only a psychiatrist can do the diagnosis. But help them do that because chances are they feel they feel alone in their pain, and they don't feel that they can do anything. They feel very hopeless. So with me, what happened once was I had a friend of mine call me and thankfully by then I already knew all these things. I had been studying for a few years 
And I could tell one minute down, she called me on, on, on my phone and I could tell that she was calling to say goodbye. It was so clear to me. And I immediately asked the question. That's a question that you should not be afraid to ask. I said, are you thinking about suicide? Or are you, if you can say the word, because it's hard for some people. And there, there is a myth also that if you say the word, you're going to put the idea in their heads. We know that's not true. It's actually the opposite. It gives them relief that they can talk to you about that. So ask the question, are you thinking about taking your life? And when I did that, she started crying. Hmm. And she had everything planned for that week. So sit down. It's going to be a long conversation. Put time aside. Put all your phones and distractions away listen that's the most important thing the first thing you have to do if you realize that they're contemplating suicide or if they come to you and tell you sit down and say okay just tell me what's going on because what you can offer to the person is of course emotional support but you can offer them perspective a suicidal person has a very constricted mind and very constricted and limited view of what they're going through. And the way you can help is to broaden that perspective, to offer them hope, bring in hope into the conversation, show them options because again, they may not be seeing any options. They think the suicide is the only option. I know in my own experience, like leading up to my suicide attempt, you are correct in that the vision is very constricted. You know, I call it in my book, the funhouse mirror. Like it, it's a distortion of reality. I'm seeing mm-hmm. things that I think are reality when they are actually not to everybody else around me. And so having somebody come and do what you're saying, like help talk you through the situation, help you get a better perspective or a different perspective, just to consider things from a different angle. And what are the solutions? Like what you're saying, Mm -hmm. you know, those, those are the things that for me would have made a difference. And having somebody talk about, say the word, you know, are you thinking about suicide? to just have that be a freeing place. Like, oh, it's okay if I talk to them about it. Because I know for me, I was worried. I didn't want to shock other people. Like I had, I had mm-hmm. all these thoughts in my head, but if other people weren't thinking about it, I wasn't going to bring it up. I wasn't going to go there. But if somebody had brought it up to me, I would have opened right up about it. Yes. And just knowing, as you said, when we say the word suicide or whichever way you want to bring this up, it, it sends a message that I'm okay to listen right? And so many times, Mikhail, I don't know if it applies to you, but so many times that's the only thing they need because they're so alone. I've heard so many times over the past, I don't know, 15 years, people say that the book saved their lives, listening to a story that was similar to theirs saved their lives, or just me answering back to them saved their lives. And and this is me, a total stranger, Someone who sent me an email and I received those all the time said, listen, I li- back then I didn't even have just, the, I only had the book. So I, I, they would tell me their stories. They'll tell me about their pain, what they're going through. And I answer them and they say, I cannot believe that you replied to me. 
and you know of course i i would also ask them questions and 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 just give them some perspective of what they were going through and they'll say that saved my life i'm a stranger this is someone who they never saw and probably they never will but just the fact that someone took some time to answer them to show they cared saved their lives and that's so many times that's the case. They need someone to feel safe that they can talk about this. And as I was saying before, be proactive. Hold their hands. My friend, I actually said, can you give me some time? Just give me a month. That's all I'm asking you because there might be another way. Let me help you. And because I knew her so well, I did think that she needed to see a doctor. And I said, I will make, I will make an appointment for you because you are sometimes, especially if you have depression, you are immobilized, right? It's so hard to do anything. So be proactive, make the appointment for them. Hold their hands, take them to the, to the doctor because they might not have any energy to do so. Because that's what that's what depression takes from you, right? It's yeah. it's depression is about apathy. It's about not having any vitality whatsoever to do anything. So hold their hands and and make some decisions for them. Help them in practical ways too. I had a good conversation with my son Sam, who also was diagnosed with uh, anxiety and depression, and and really was extremely limited in what he was able to do. We've kind of talked about that in past episodes of the podcast, but our episode last week was what do you do when you're at rock bottom? So I had asked Sam, like in your experience, what would be your best advice? Because he was suicidal for a number of months. Like I was terrified that we were going to lose him. And he said, uh, my advice is number one, like numb your brain, stop thinking about it, do something. And, and he would watch funny YouTube videos and, and <laughs> things like that to just distract himself from the situation. But the other thing he said is, you know, mom, when you were the one who forced me to go to the doctor, he, I didn't have the energy to do it, but you helped me. Like you made the appointment, you got me out the door, you drove me there, you picked up everything I needed, you handled the situation for me. And that's what I needed because I couldn't have done it on my own. And that's what got me through that rock bottom time. Yeah. And that's, it's a misconception we have about depression. I had depression after my father died. I, I developed during the times uh, when I was writing the book, as I told you, I relived it and I developed depression. I was diagnosed and I, I did the treatment completely. It only lasted for me. Fortunately, I didn't have to take the medication forever. I took it for one year and then I was fine. So it was momentary, situational. But we have this misconception about uh, depression that it's about being sad, right? People think that, oh, she's depressed equals being sad. No, it's about vitality. It's about having energy to do anything. Mm -hmm. It's so hard. So help them with whatever the situation is. And we know now for many, many years, we use the number of 90%. We used to say 90% of suicides are related to mental illness. We know that that's not true anymore. It might not be a case of mental illness. Actually, in the US now, the number we have is 54% are not related to mental illness. Wow. So the majority is not here. And of course, it depends on the country and where you are. But it can be a personal crisis. So let's say it's financial crisis. Sit down with them, help them do this. 
if you, of course, if you can help them with money, good, but no, sometimes it's just, they don't have the vitality to sit down and organize their finances. Do that, for, that's, that's what I mean by being proactive. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you know, hold their hands and help them in whichever way necessary. If they have kids, kids help help with the kids whatever is necessary but be proactive don't wait for them to solve their problems because if they could they would they wouldn't be thinking about suicide well and i know for me too i didn't know how to so even when somebody was asking me you know what can i do to help what what do you need i don't know if i knew i probably already would have done it but i i genuinely don't know i can't see past my blinders or through this funhouse mirror. My, my vision doesn't go that far and I really don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. That's why it's important to understand and it's important to sit down and really listen and ask the right questions. And the right questions I mean by with no judgment. Try to really understand where they are. That's, that's where you can meet them, where they are. Try to understand what the question is, what the problem, what the personal crisis is. Or in your case, it was, it was mental, mental health. So you needed to see a professional, right? I but did, in some yeah. cases, it isn't. So that's why it's important to listen. Just listen. Don't, wait, don't be thinking about what am I going to do next or how can I answer this? How can, just think about how can you help? How can you actually listen and how can you offer help and involve other people? It doesn't have to be you alone. Be careful with the people you involve. This is very important, especially family members, because we think, okay, I'm going to maybe call their mom or call their brothers or sisters and involve them. Ask for consent, because sometimes that's where the crisis is. Mm. But that try to... Try to amplify support, social support with consent and be very careful with family members. That's very important. So I have a specific question about that. This situation happened with one of our kids. Their friend confided in them that they were thinking about suicide and they had a plan, but told them not to tell anyone else. And they came to me because they were so worried and asked me to contact the parent. And so... Like in that situation, you were right. It did, things were very strained in their relationship and it never recovered. But on the other hand, he got help and now he's safe. So I don't know what the right thing to do was. I don't know what the best advice was to give my child. Mm -hmm. It's a very, that's a very tricky, very important question. Very tricky one. It, of course, it depends on whether or not they're minor. If they're a minor, even if safety first, that, that's how I see this. Safety comes first. You need to kind of save their lives, right? And, and keep them safe. But you have, to, you have to look at the family dynamics as well. Maybe don't contact the parents and contact aunt or uncle who are more supportive and who will be able to help. It depends. It depends on the age. It depends on the relationship that they have. But safety comes first. As you said, it strained the relationship that was already hard, but the person is still alive, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I, I think that safety comes first, but it, it depends on the situation. And again, that's why it's so important to try to understand, but invite them. Most of the times what I would do is 
ask them, okay, I think we need to involve somebody else because sometimes you feel that you can, maybe you're not that close to the person and or you don't have the resources or you, emotionally, you just can't do it by yourself. Ask them to tell you and help you find more resources. And it can be even external resources. It doesn't have to be a person, but for example, support groups, you can find clinics, depending on the county or the city where you live, you have crisis centers that can help with that. You can find external resources too before you bring in the family. Yeah. You know, you brought up something that I, I think is very important about suicide is not, it's about pain. It's about getting the pain to stop. And this has been my experience, you know, when with Mikkel's suicide attempt, um, you talk about not, because I remember conversations with her when I knew she was in a, a really bad place, but I was like, aren't you thinking about me? And haven't you thought about, you, you know, and I'm trying to rationalize mm -hmm. with her without addressing the pain and the root problem. And I, I couldn't figure out why these logical <laughs> arguments were not being persuasive and, and I think that's, that's the reality is because the root, um, I, I was ignoring the pain and it's almost like, look, I know you're feeling that, but think about me, think about the kids, think about this. And the thing is, until that pain stops, they can't. And well, so, and I've yeah. said, I never wanted to die. I just wanted everything to stop. And those mm -hmm. are two different things. Very different. In most of the cases of people that I know that I've talked over the years and clients, that's what they want. They want the pain to stop. Mm -hmm. It's not about dying. If they have an option, they, they will try something else. And again, as you said, uh, Adam, that's how the brain works. When you are in that state of pain, you are in your limbic system. You are here in the back of your, of your head. You are stuck with your emotions. And when you're stuck there, this area here, the prefrontal cortex, the logical mind, it's not, you can't access it. That's how the brain works. When the brain decides that it wants, it wants to keep you safe, it's not about logic, it's about emotions. Mm -hmm. You are feeling threatened and that's where you stay. So no logical, no, oh, this is going to do this and it's not going to solve your problem. None of that works. You have to meet them where their emotions are. And for me, the biggest way I realized I could help is figure out what things make the pain go away or lift the burden, lift the weight. And for Michaela, a lot of it was me canceling things, like just simplifying our lives. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. I realized that was something, I mean, it didn't make the pain go away, but it made things easier and lighter. And so you know, we've talked about it on our podcast, sometimes you have to get really creative with life and throw away all of the things that we have to do. You know, we think we have to do all these things, but when the person realizes you're willing to give up these things you have to do for their benefit, it means a lot. And they feel- Well, that's when I felt like I had help in it. I mean, I really felt like I was by myself. Right. You know, having to shoulder the responsibility of the kids and the house and so many things that we had going on in our lives. And so, you know, when you were willing to cancel, that was the first time that I felt like, oh, I can rest and these things will still be taken care of. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a relief, isn't it? And if you work on these two fronts, if you think that it's in your case, Mikhail, that's what it was, you needed to first stabilize with medication. And that takes a while, we know that. So you're working on two fronts because one, you are kind of stabilizing your brain and your chemistry. It was a case of mental illness. And on the other side is take some of that shame and blame from me because you start to feed yourself with the blame of, I'm not taking care of my kids. I'm not doing my finances. I'm not working well, I can't go to work. And that feeds the emotional brain. So if you have someone who takes that away and helps you with that in practical ways, you are stabilizing on both sides and that's how you can get better. Is there anything that you wish people knew about mental illness that uh, they don't or is commonly misunderstood? Yes, mental illness, as I think there is a, a prejudice about mental illness, illness that is a choice. It's kind of a choice, right? You choose to fight it. And it's not, no, it's not, that's not the way it is. I remember when I started feeling that there was something wrong with me. And this is someone who I had already studied. I was doing my, my training in psychoanalysis. I knew there was something off, and, but I wasn't sure whether or not it was mental illness. So of course I went to a doctor, but I remember I went to the doctor and said, let's get hormones out of the way, right? Hormones or do, do any kind of test you need just to get all of that out of the way. But I remember thinking, I mean, I can get through this alone. I can do this on my own. And then I realized, no, because I was having breakdowns everywhere out of the blue with friends sometimes in a bar having fun and this cloud would come over me, right? And I would start, I wanted to cry and I felt this, I don't know, it was just the most horrific paralyzing sensations that I ever had in my life that would, for me, come out of the blue. Of course, it wasn't what, when I look back and I know what I was going through, but please do not put that burden on someone who is going through mental illness. It's not about choice. Mm -hmm. No, they cannot do it alone. No, they can't. They need medication to stabilize and they need support from people who will not judge their actions and who will be patient to wait until they stabilize. Mm-hmm. Well, Paula, I think we could probably talk for hours. I mean, you are I just I know. Have so you are much a resource, a wealth of information. We're so glad we could have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I this is this has become my mission. It really has, and I do it with so much passion. I just love and I, I know that sometimes it's something so little that you do for someone that makes such a huge difference. Yeah. So I'm glad I can participate in podcasts like yours. And I love your podcast, how you talk about this so openly and so honestly. It's great. And, and it's great that you involve your family. I love that you brought in your son and you talked about it. I actually have one episode with my sister talking mm-hmm. about this and how we see my dad's suicide and we have some differences and that's okay. And that's the, I would like to end with this with four families, especially families who lost people to suicide is that it's okay that you have different views because mm-hmm. that can be such a source of pain and conflict in families because sometimes one doesn't believe it was suicide he thinks or she thinks it's it was an accident or they there was no intent and the other one goes no it was 
And there is a fight over that. I mean, you know, come, this is denial or they start having a lot of conflict. It's okay to have different views. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in different phases of, of coming, facing the grief and, and coming to terms with reality. Sometimes it takes time for some people and sometimes they, they will never believe it was suicide. And that's okay. It's grief and it's pain all the same. So respect differences. Well, before we wrap it up, do you want to tell everybody about your book or podcast? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So everybody wants to find it? Yes. Uh, So my podcast is called Understand Suicide. Everything's Understand Suicide. So the podcast, the YouTube channel where I have my most of my interviews are there, too, because some people like to see. Right. And so you, you have the visuals. You can um, see, but the listeners can't see. We're in the closet and I'm taking a pajama day. So I for sure cannot post this on a YouTube channel. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, but I always tell my, my, my guests. So we're going to have uh, the visuals too. So we're going to have the video. So on my YouTube channel, just, you know, just type understand suicide my book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Lost Paths to Prevention, or you can just type my name. It's on Amazon too. And my website is understandsuicide.com. And there you can, you have so, I'm always adding new resources. You have a hotlines, you have addresses for how to find support groups in your areas if, if you need one. You have resources for grief, you have resources for people, what to do, you have a lot of, even I even have sentences of how to help someone who's contemplating suicide, what to say, what you should not say. So there are a lot of resources there, word data, you name it. Books, I have a lot of suggestions on good books, on grief or to how to help someone. So I think the the website is a good start. And and from that, there you can find my book. You can find the podcast and the YouTube channel too. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for being here with us today. If you like this podcast, rate it and share it with a friend. If you have topics you'd like to see covered or guests that you'd like to see on, you can submit them on Instagram at Thriving With Mental Illness or on Facebook, Mikel Buck. Remember, there are no topics that are off limits and no questions that aren't to get asked. We will see you next time. See you next time.